Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast from Netflix. I'm Ray Vada, and I'm back to host this week's special episode. Since the first season of Making a Murderer dropped in 2015, true crime fans have been wondering what happened to Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey. So we couldn't wait our usual two weeks for a new episode. We know you've all been devouring Making a Murderer Part 2, so we got a great panel together to continue the conversation. Dan Taberski, host of the hit podcast Missing Richard Simmons, will lead a roundtable discussion with Phoebe Judge and David Rudolph. Phoebe hosts one of the original true crime podcasts, Criminal. And you might recognize David Rudolph from the Netflix original docuseries, The Staircase. David represented Michael Peterson and has firsthand experience being in a true crime documentary. If you haven't yet, you might want to watch part two of Making a Murderer before listening to this episode. There are some spoilers ahead. Now let's pass the mic over to Dan, Phoebe, and David. Hi, guys. How are you? Great. Fine, thank you. Good. Are you both down in uh, North Carolina? We are. We're both in Chapel Hill right now. Oh, awesome. But not next to each other. Yes. Well, actually, uh, across from each other. Oh, you are. So you can roll your eyes at me at my at whenever I ask a question. Yes, we and we can uh, do hand signals and things. <laughs> Just high fives. It's going to be high fives. So uh, you guys saw, both saw Making a Murderer Part 1, right? Yes. Yes. Were you early adopters, late adopters? Like, were you on the wave or were you ahead of everybody else? I was behind the wave a little bit. Uh, were you? I, yeah, and I, I only watched, I think I, I watched the uh, the episode where Dassey um, was interviewed, interrogated, mm. not interviewed, uh, and I had to I had to stop. Uh, I couldn't watch anymore. Really? I, I, yeah, I then went back and, and uh, recently watched the entire series again. Wow. Tell me why you couldn't watch the uh, Brendan uh, interrogation. Because it was just horrific to me. Uh, you know, what they did to that kid was just, in my mind, inexcusable. Yeah. It's pretty hard to watch. Yeah. It was, it was really upsetting to me on a, on a sort of fundamental emotional level, putting aside the, the legal issues. Right. Well, yeah, I have to say, I'm, I'm just going to jump right into this. Uh, I have to say that surprises me that you don't have more of a remove uh, from seeing things like this. I, w- I would imagine you come across things like this all the time. You know, uh, I've never quite been able to steel myself to that kind of behavior. Um, it's a plus and a minus. You know, it's it's a plus in terms of my commitment to what I do. Uh, hmm. It's a minus to my personal life. There's good and bad, but I, you know, uh, I've been doing this a long time, and I still get outraged every time I see an outrage. Hmm. I guess that's a good thing. You don't want to become too numb to that sort of thing. Yeah, no, I've I've never I've never managed to become numb. Phoebe, do you remember when you saw Making a Murderer One first? Yeah, I don't think that I was behind the wave. I think I was just on the wave. Uh, I started hearing people talking about this documentary and um, that it was complex in their telling of it and the detail and that they had followed these stories for so long and I was intrigued. Uh, I also remember that interrogation scene and and finding it incredibly disturbing. I am not a lawyer in any way, but what was going on in that room um, seemed a bit suspect to me. It was hard to watch, and you saw the train of what was going to happen to this teenage boy. You saw Mm. it coming, and 
you realize that he probably did not realize what was about to come. And I kept thinking to myself in that scene where his mother comes in afterwards and the look on her face of kind of what what did you say? Oh, no, what did you say? That she also was seeing now that this was out of their hands, that something much bigger was now going to happen. Yeah, and, and, and that also that moment, what was so chilling about that is that the mother comes in and the minute she starts asking questions, the prosecutors, they just, were they prosecutors or investigators? They just rush right back in the room. Like they don't want to leave her a moment with her kid to sort of almost, it almost seems like they don't want to leave her to ask the real questions and, and find out what really happened in that room. Well, you know, the reality is uh, they were trained in the Reed technique, which is a particular interrogation technique. And a fundamental principle of that technique is to isolate the suspect from familiar surroundings, from familiar people, hmm. uh, to to leave the suspect sort of emotionally adrift. Uh, and that's particularly problematical. It's problematical for anybody but it's particularly problematical when you have a, a mentally impaired 16-year-old. Uh, and uh, and that's part of what made it so hard to watch. You know, if we were watching a, a really slick street person uh, being interrogated that way, I, I don't think that the reaction would have been the same. It It's, it's you know, two grown-ups really taking advantage yeah. of a mentally challenged 16-year-old. And it's just, it's just disturbing on every single level. What are the normal... Uh rules of thumb for something like that in terms of interrogating somebody who is of a certain age, but potentially mentally not incapacitated, but maybe at a disadvantage. Um, what are the rules there or is, are there rules? Well, each state varies. So uh, in, in a number of states, uh, the parent has to be present uh, for that interrogation. Uh, in other states, it uh, depends on, on the age, but not so much. So it's really a, a jurisdiction by jurisdiction issue. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, I think people are, are beginning to come to grips with with the fact that uh, especially teenage boys uh, don't have even even mentally whole teenage boys. Uh, you know, their frontal lobes haven't yet developed to the point where they can uh, where they can really uh, be held responsible f- uh, for adult behavior. Hmm. Wow. Well, I'll never forget the look of confusion on his face. Um, well, he he wanted to know whether he could go back to school you know, oh, for gosh. sixth period. Yeah, that says it right there. Um, David, I, I don't think you've seen part two yet, so I'm just going to uh, nerd out with Phoebe for a second. Sure. Phoebe, what do you think of the first two episodes? Well, you know, what's really interesting to me as someone who kind of does this for a living, talks about different crime cases, is when you see the breakdown of the detailed testing that they're doing now to try to prove Stephen Avery's innocence. I was shocked that when I saw that car uh, pull up, the same car that uh, Teresa had, and the mm. fact that they spent so much time testing all these different theories. I mean, it's it's a puzzle you're trying to figure out. And I was totally, I was totally fascinated by the different experiments they did in that car to try to disprove the DNA placement or where DNA of Stephen Avery was found. Right. I thought that was 
I thought I, mean, I was just I was I couldn't stop looking away. Um, wow, that stuff is so interesting to me, and also the tenacity of this lawyer who said, "I'm going to do whatever I have to do. I'm gonna, I'm going to get out there in that car. I'm going to drive through the auto salvage. I'm going to you know get on my hands and knees and drop real specimens of blood around." I found yeah. that also fascinating to watch. Yeah, so so David, uh, uh, Phoebe's talking about Kathleen Zellner, uh, uh-huh. who who is. Do you know Kathleen Zellner? I don't. I I know of her, but I've never met her. Oh, okay. I was wondering if all you guys like hang out together, play racquetball. <laughs> no, we're we're uh, we're a thousand miles apart. Okay, in spirit, you're close together. Exactly. Well, so what happened is that she actually she actually saw Making a Murderer Part One, and then she wrote to Avery saying that she wanted to take on their case after they had been writing letters to her for years trying to get her to do that. So uh, first I want to listen to a clip uh, from her just so everyone can get familiar. I told Stephen Avery the same thing I tell everyone. If you hire me and you're guilty, trust me, I'll do a way better job than the prosecutors. I will find out if you are guilty. And we're going to do testing. We can't control the results. The results will be turned over to both sides. So really think about this. You would have to be an idiot to be hiring me to prove that you're guilty. So, David, I'm just, I'm just curious. Um, that's a pretty shocking thing to say. I mean, is that is that your experience? Um, what, what do you think of, of what she just said? Well, you know, I'm not sure of the context in which she's talking, because obviously, uh, you know, if if I'm being represent if I'm being hired to represent somebody at a trial stage, you know, my job is not to prove guilt. And indeed, I would never start out with that sort of a speech. Uh, and, and, you know, each, each lawyer has their own uh, way of approaching things. But my approach is to explain to the person that uh, if I am going to do a really good job for them, that I need to know the truth, whatever the truth is. Uh, and I also don't expect them to tell me the truth until we establish a trusting relationship, un- until they believe that I really care about them as a person and that I'm not going to judge them based on what they tell me. Uh, because if I had committed a crime, for example, and I go in and meet a lawyer for the first time, I'm going to be worried about what that lawyer is going to think about me hmm. if I just start spilling my guts. So. Uh, you know, different strokes for different folks. Um, I, I would just approach it differently. But again, I don't. You know, it's one thing if if what she's saying is that you know if you're going to hire me post trial, uh, that may be a very different situation. Uh, you know, I'm I'm always getting involved at the outset. Hmm. So then Kathleen Zellner gets into all this. Uh, she she basically digs up all the original evidence and starts, you know, hacking away at it one by one, like sweat DNA, blood splatter. Um, I guess the question is like, and she, she seems to find a lot of problems, especially with the blood splatter. Is the problem with DNA evidence, blood splatter evidence analysis, or is the problem with how certain prosecutors deal with that and try to use that information? Does that question make sense? Sure, uh, but but just just so you can sound really informed, it's, it's blood spatter, not blood splatter. Oh, actually, I'm talking <laughs> about blood splatter. That's a whole totally different thing. Sorry, I, I should have explained myself. Now let me educate you, David. 
<laughs> anyway, sorry, sorry, I'm um, just kidding. Blood spatter, blood spatter. Yeah, no, well, the blood spatter evidence and DNA evidence are two very, very different things. Uh, there's actually science uh, that underpins DNA evidence. Uh, there's no real science. I mean, there's a little bit of physics that uh, that controls blood spatter analysis. You know, uh, blood drops down. It's you know. It, <laughs> gravity takes control or you know uh it it gets in you know what's what starts in motion stays in motion until it hits something that stops it uh you know there there are certain basic physics that that control but there's no real um way it's very subjective let's just put it that way uh extremely subjective as mm-hmm. as people saw in the staircase yeah. Uh, where you had Dwayne Deaver, uh, you know, an alleged SBI expert, come in and testify to things that were just absurd. Uh, so, you know, personally, I think blood spatter testimony has very, very, very limited usage. Uh, mm. I, I don't think it's I don't think it's irrelevant, but I think it's it needs to be really closely cabined. Mm. Uh, D- DNA evidence, on the other hand. Uh, at least until you start getting into mixtures where, where you can start having some some real um, subjectivity, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, is science-based uh, and and capable of testing and capable of, of reproducing results. Uh, so so I see the two as very different. Hmm. Phoebe, in the uh, what did you think of the forensic brainwave analysis? Well, I mean, I think David is right. I mean, from everything that I know from reporting on a number of a lot of cases is that any evidence that's up for interpretation is something that is going to potentially be problematic. So we talk about lie detector tests in the same way we talk about blood spatter. You know, these are things that a so-called professional can read and say, well, here is my opinion. It's an educated opinion, but it is at the it is an opinion. And another person could see it another a you know, million different ways. And so I think that you know, the brain imaging, is that what it's called? Brain wave? I think it's called brain forensic brainwave analysis. David, maybe no, you I, can. It's like, it's like brain fingerprinting. So it's oh. a, this is a way, I, I, it's the same, we're speaking of the same thing, but I yes. think that the idea here is that before when a lie detector, um, someone who is analyzing the lie detector test, there was interpretation, this brain fingerprinting mapping is a way to pinpoint in a more scientific way, so moving towards that more DNA level, scientific of what's going on. Right. I think it's interesting. It still did not seem to me to be a hundred percent fail proof. I mean, it it seems like there also is some interpretation which is going on with the brain fingerprinting. Right. Um, but is it a more accurate way of lie detector, a new lie detector test? It looks like it's moving that way, but from what I'm understanding, lie detector tests, no one really thinking about anymore right. so maybe this will have to be the next iteration of that david what do you know do you do you, do you know what this brainwave analysis thing is no and i'm not sure i want to know <laughs> <laughs> well that's what i thought I, you know I mean, we, we have we have enough junk science in the courts right now i don't know that we need another one but but i'm 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 all ears I, I'm not even sure I understand it either. Basically, it looked like a lie. But they, they basically, they hooked Stephen Avery up to a sort of a lie detector thing, except but instead of measuring the things that a normal lie detector test would uh, would be measuring, it's measuring brain waves. Uh, and so they gave him this test, and the test says um, basically 
if you were to believe this test or that it was 100% accurate, it says he didn't do it. He doesn't know anything about it. Um, and I'm just curious as to what planting that in my head as I'm watching this documentary, how real that is and how much weight I should give uh, it. Well, that that's a whole different story. I mean, if we're talking about optics and we're talking about uh, creating uh, certain uh, mindsets, uh, certainly things like lie detector tests uh, have been used forever to do that. Uh, they're used by the police as an interrogation technique. Uh, and frankly, they're used by defense lawyers in in going to prosecutors uh, and trying to negotiate uh, a dismissal of a case or, or a, a decision not to indict. Right. So, you know, clearly, uh, you know, those things, whether they're scientifically valid or not, have an effect on people. And, and to that extent, I don't fault anybody for doing that. Uh, I don't know what the basis of the science is. I don't, I, you know, I, I need to know a lot more about what brainwaves are showing what things and why anybody thinks they're showing it uh, and whether you can actually reproduce that and test it, do blind testing. And, and you know, th- there's a lot that has to be done before something ought to be scientifically acceptable. And, and uh, given the fact that I haven't heard of it uh, and I'm not living in a cave, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure that work's been done yet. Probably a bad sign that you haven't heard about it. So I won't pay attention to it then. I'm going to forget I saw that scene. Well, you won't forget about it. That's the whole point. That is the whole point. Uh, but we'll get to that later. Uh, I have a question about that. First, I want to talk about the fandom of what came out of Making a Murderer Part 1. The first chunk of Making a Murderer Part 2 is basically about the public reaction uh, that came out of the first part and how people saw it. And basically, um, this huge outcry of support for Stephen and Brendan. Uh, You know, they're getting fan letters and scrapbooks. One of them, you know, even got a quilt. And actually, I'm a quilter, which is super weird that somebody would spend all that time making a quilt uh, and send it to somebody they don't know just because they were touched in some way. Phoebe, what are people reacting to when they see making a murderer um, that makes them respond like that? Well, I, there's a couple of things to say about it. I mean, look what happened with Serial season one, right? This is people want to pick a side mm. and they want to be armchair detectives. And also the whole way in which Making a Murderer was produced paints both of these characters, Stephen and Brendan, in a very sympathetic light. Yeah. And so, of course, as you're watching this, as you're being presented with more and more evidence about how these men may have been framed, you are getting more and more enraged. We as human beings, this is what we like. We, we like stories like this because we like to feel things. We like to be able to pick a side. We like to be able to f- investigate things on our own. So there is no, there's no question that this elicited a gigantic response from people. And these are the things that people talk about in the morning. They talk about it when they get to work. Did you see the latest episode? What do you think? And that just builds up the hype and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And by the end of such a long series, you're made to feel like you know Stephen Avery in some way. And you've, you're now on his side. And so, of course, you make him a quilt. You write to him in letter. I mean, in letters, we see in the first episode just how much time of the day now Stephen Avery is spending responding to letters. And he seems shocked by the impact it's had. Um, but it, it isn't surprising to me that this would have gained a cult following in some way. Hmm. 
you know, to my mind, uh, you know, while I agree with Phoebe about, you know, why people like these things, I think there's a, another level there. And I think the other level is uh, that they got taken advantage of. You know, people feel like the cops didn't play fair and the prosecutor didn't play fair. It wasn't really a question of guilt or innocence for me. It was a question of watching the system chew somebody up, watching a district attorney hold a press conference uh, and put out a story that was completely inconsistent with the physical facts, uh, you know, in a way that would just prejudice anybody in that situation. Uh, and, and that's what came through for me. And, and I think that's reality. Uh, and if that's what the what the filmmakers thought, well, then I think they were they were right on the money about that. Hmm. Uh, is 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 this problem? If we're if we're not going to focus on on Brendan and Stephen here, and we're going to focus on a larger issue, which I think is what for me it's a bit of a shame that I mean I, I think empathy is always good. So if if people are feeling something for people that feel was wrong, they were wronged. I think that's good. But I also think that it's a bit off the mark. I think the real target is to look at the things that you're saying, David, about the big issues about corruption in the criminal justice system and, and whether or not we're giving people a fair shake. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and and indeed, you know, when I talk about the staircase, you know, people ask questions about the owl theory or whatever. But But that's not really the point for me. Indeed, the point really isn't whether somebody thinks Michael is guilty or not guilty. Uh, you know, the real point is, how did this system work and why did it fail? Because clearly it failed. And that's the important takeaway for me from the staircase, from making a murderer, uh, and from and various, uh, you know, West Memphis 3. Mm. Uh, there have been a number of, of documentaries that, I, and I think they're having... I hope they're having an effect on your average person, that all of a sudden people are, are waking up to the things that, that we criminal defense lawyers have known for decades. Hmm. Phoebe, it's, uh, when, when we were talking about these first two episodes, uh, what really got me, the scenes that I love the most are just um, are the scenes with the, with the Avery family, with the mom and the dad and the brother and... To me, I'm just drawn. I, I'm drawn less to the mystery. I might be the anomaly. I'm drawn less to the mystery, and I'm I'm more drawn to just the sadness of it, and 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 the way that sort of real people take these incredible life um, struggles and just process them. And to be able to see that is pretty remarkable. Uh, I would imagine that appeals to you as well. Well, it doesn't appeal to me because it, it's it's tragedy in in the worst way, and it it. Um... I am actually, as a viewer of this, I'm more drawn to the mystery because seeing the how this whole thing has aged Stephen Avery's parents' face uh, yeah. is horrible to see, but also says everything you need. What what I admire about this series is how quiet it is when they deal with Stephen Avery's mother and father. Mm -hmm. They don't need to say anything. You can just watch them moving around the house, taking apart a carburetor, and mm -hmm. know all you need to know. And and that's the thing that... It, and the it, conversations are so banal, too, like when they're on the phone with Stephen at the, at the prison, or uh, they're always like, so what time are you getting here? Like, it's always these really sort of drawn out, really mundane conversations, but for some reason that's more human than, uh, than you would imagine. Well, of course, because all anyone wants is to feel connected to the outside world, you know, and um, I, I, I think that... 
I think that what's what's so interesting in the whole representation of the family is that you have sympathy for these parents of Stephen Avery, whether he is guilty or not. You know, that that this is how we see how crime ripples out the effects of these things mm-hmm. is that you don't that does it. It's a whole other side story going on to watch these parents and to watch them over the years and to watch them to continue to struggle. And in my opinion, in this in this new in these new episodes to start to see them almost give up the battle. You know, to be tired, to be beleaguered in a way that they didn't seem to be years ago. Mm. That, I think, is so tragic to watch. Mm. Um, but I also think it's says so much because we have so much sympathy for them, whether Stephen Avery did this or not. I mean, it doesn't matter. You still get to, to see these parents just suffer. Do you worry about the part that that the filmmakers don't have access to, to the, to the, the parents of, of the woman who was murdered? And and the um, the ramifications of of not just hashing this out in in one making a murderer, but doing it in a part two again, is there any responsibility there? Or? I'm not saying there is. I just think it's. I I wonder. It's always in the back of my mind as I'm watching it. Well, I make a crime show, which uh, from the beginning has been very very aware of uh, never trying to sensationalize or to put in scenes of violence or to talk about things just because it will get a rise mm. or yes that is incredible that is why I created criminal to do uh, because I was so unhappy with the type of true crime reporting that I had been seeing um, it's why hmm. we started the show um for is that right ago. oh of course I mean th- what, four years ago there wasn't much out there in terms of true crime podcasts um, or anything really so um, yeah I mean yes I think that is incredibly important important. But I think that that's why watching how Stephen Avery's family, I don't think that that watching how it's impacted his family means that we don't take what happened to Teresa's and to Teresa's family seriously. I think if it's done with respect, Mm. um, it's when you when you start to be disrespectful um, that I think you get into very bad territory quickly. Mm. And uh, from what I've seen, at least how they've portrayed this Avery family, I feel like they've done it in a way that I don't think is harmful to, but of course, yes, this is popular entertainment made on a tragedy. And that's always got to give you pause, mm. um, I think. David, are you a true crime fan? Uh, no, I, I actually live my life in true crime, so so I don't need to watch it in my spare time. <laughs> uh, Phoebe, what, uh, what uh, I guess I don't want you to say what true crime bothers you out there, but I mean, do you definitely... Are there columns about good true crime, bad true crime, somewhere in the middle, stuff that you think is noble, stuff that you think is how does it how does it shake out for you? Uh, people who speculate, people who don't report in facts, mm. people who depict uh, violence just for the hell of it, people who don't take into account the fact that a victim's family might be listening or watching this, mm. uh, people who exploit other people's sufferings. Those are all things which I think are in the bad column, uh, which I, and I work all the time to try to never fall in that column. I, mm. It's incredibly important to us. But yes, all those things are what I consider to be the problems with uh, true crime reporting. Hmm. Phoebe, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, um, and I'm curious to hear 
David's response to this answer. Uh, how much uh, of an impact are you trying to have in terms of the criminal justice system, in terms of the way we look at certain types of evidence or the way we assume somebody's guilt or innocence? Are you motivated in that sense or are you more motivated through telling stories? I'm not I, I do not think our primary motivation is to shine a light on the criminal justice system, the injustices that we see after doing this show and uh, how complicated it is, because I am more confused by the criminal justice system now than I was four years ago. You're kidding. Um, of course. I mean, yeah, the more you know, the more confused you get, of course. I mean, it, because it's not as simple as, oh, well, now I understand how the court system works. I know how the, the appeal system works. I mean, no, of course. I mean, it gets more and more complicated. Right. But. I have a show about crime, but uh, I've always said that people really were just a a show about the human experience. All I want to know is why people do the things they do. What gets them to the position where they might commit a crime or what happens after a terrible thing occurs where they're the victim of a crime? That's, that is really my main goal. And of course, that sometimes collides with the criminal justice system and talking about it. And we spend a lot of time getting court reports and things like that. But really, it's a, it's a show just trying to figure out why people do the things they do. I don't want to say I, I'm not going to say that, that that answer would disappoint you, David. But what do you want to see from from true crime? Uh, I, I would imagine you you would have more of a motivation towards affecting the system. Yeah, and and I think you know what Phoebe's saying is that that her her focus, if you will, uh, is not so much on the criminal justice system or on the the, the problems in the criminal justice system. Uh, but rather on the human beings who are interacting with the criminal justice system. And I understand that, and I think, you know, that's fine. Uh, Mm. For me, uh, I'm really hoping that these kinds of documentaries spur more questioning and in-depth analysis by people like Phoebe, uh, who have an interest in it, of the criminal justice system and, and, and why things go wrong and how they go wrong and why so many people are wrongfully convicted and what kinds of reforms can can be put in place, and how do they do things in other in other countries and other jurisdictions that may be better than what we do? Uh, what can we learn from them? What can they learn from us? I think there's a whole host of really really important uh, systemic issues uh, that really need to have the the light of day shined on them. For me, uh, the important thing is is much more the criminal justice system. And, and it's not so much the life stories of the people who have been caught up in it, although that's what I do on a daily basis is to is to delve into those life stories. Right. I would imagine they both go together. Like when you can take the sort of real human interest, how is this affecting people? And then you have the element of the larger issue of the criminal justice system and the wrongs that need to be right. You get a show. You get probably a series like Making a Murder, and 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 hopefully that's that's when it works really well. No, I th- I think that's exactly right. I think that's what what makes Staircase, and it's what makes Making a Murderer, and and some of these other documentaries successful is that they really meld those two uh, complementary but separate strains. Right on. Um, so last question. Um, what do you hope happens? I mean, do you think do you think there's any hope for Stephen Avery or Brendan Dassey? Like, I mean, I don't want to be I don't want you to be super negative about it. There's always hope, right? But in your in your crystal ball, what what do you what do you see happening? What do you hope happens? Well, I think David can probably answer what he thinks might happen just from a from a 
human being watcher standpoint. Mm. I mean, I hope that there's some peace for the Teresa's family so that they no longer have to wonder what happened to their daughter. And I hope that there's some peace for the Avery family and that they can stop spending their lives in this terrible, torturous cycle of uh, what happens next. Is Will these men get out? I, I just, I think that's what, I hope something comes to a conclusion. Hmm. What do you think, David? Uh, well, if if you're asking me what I hope for, uh, I would hope that Dassey uh, gets out uh, because if there is one person in this entire story uh, of the prosecution who uh, does not deserve to be in prison right now, it's Dassey. Hmm. It's so interesting talking to you guys, man. Well, thank, thank you for you. having us. Yeah, right on. Um, I maybe I'll talk to you guys. I'll, I'll, I'll text you guys when I'm watching every episode. I'll just text you guys. Right. <laughs> Thanks. Take care of yourself. Bye bye. That was Dan in conversation with Phoebe and David. Now it's time to hear from you, our listeners. Here's what you've had to say about making a murderer part two. At M Garcia said. I am living for Kathleen Zellner in season two of Making a Murderer. At Mary Morris says, Making a Murderer 2? Bye, weekend. At Meadow Ligger says, I'm watching Making a Murderer season two, but it's going to be frustrating. Like, no matter what they do in 10 hours of documentary footage, nothing will really change. It's insane how they sentence a 16-year-old to life in prison just for being related to Avery. At Twitter Erg says, In honor of making a murderer, season two coming out, let's all take a second again to remember the best sentence ever heard on Netflix. The victim identified the perpetrator as wearing white underwear, and Stephen Avery doesn't even own underwear. Tell us your thoughts on making a murderer season two and any other Netflix true stories. Just send us a tweet, a gram, even poke us on Facebook, whatever you want to do. Just search for You Can't Make This Up. We're the verified folks with that shiny blue checkmark. That's all for this week's episode of You Can't Make This Up. Next time, we'll be talking with chef and author Samin Nosrat about her new show, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. In the meantime, you can watch her series streaming now on Netflix. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review this show. It helps other people find it so we can finally get enough people together to start a podcast cult. Aren't you excited? You Can't Make This Up is a production of Pineapple Street Media and Netflix. Our music is by Hansel Sue. I'm Ray Vada, and thank you for listening.